I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. What's going on, everybody? Happy Monday. The Celtics came back and JT absolutely dominated. I'm sure you guys have seen, read, heard so much about this that it feels like it happened two weeks ago. It didn't. It was very recent. I'm joined by Mr. Greg Manikis. We're recording this before the Portland game. Usual reasons apply. Not going to dive into that too much. Greg, how you doing, man? Are you back home now? Are you still in Boston? Um, I'm back in Austin, Texas right now. Uh, so last weekend I was back home in Boston, but that was just a quick trip home. That was actually like my Christmas trip that got delayed because of COVID. And I just picked some random weekend in April and uh, it was a good time, man. But, you know, seeing seeing Jason Tatum uh, give the 60 piece the other night definitely gave me some home cooking, you know, something that, something that I was missing because that dude was, woo, man. Yeah, I, I think like everyone's probably heard enough about Jason Tatum 60 but can you actually ever hear enough about a dude who's going to be the face of your franchise for the next decade scoring 60 points when he's 22 years old do you know what's scary I don't think this will be the only time we say that he scored 60 I think there'll be multiple occasions um I think that it's going to become not we're not going to become desensitized to these outbursts because I don't think they're going to be regular enough for us to become desensitized but I think that when we look back in five or six years there's going to be a plethora of games that we can pick from to pinpoint where he turned a corner. So this Mm. time it's, oh, he turned a corner and now unequivocally placed himself in a superstar conversation. Then the next time he does it, we might look back and be like, well, this time he turned a corner and unequivocally became a superstar. And the growth that he's on and the exponential traction that he's growing at the moment is just ridiculous, man. I mean, for everybody that's been watching him play over the years... Uh, the way he's finishing through contact now, the way he's drawing fouls now, um, he's so much more judicial in his shot selection when he's playing mm-hmm. well. Um, it was just an excellent all-round performance, man. I mean, he he's the reason the Celtics won. He's part one big reason the Celtics came back. He's just his subs has bacon. That I think that's the only way you can describe <laughs> it right now. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely eating his bacon because I mean, the way he was finishing through contact with Jacob. Pirtle, I think that's how you say the same, Pirtle at the rim, like that dude's no slouch as a rim protector. And he went through his body a couple of times. The Spurs also have really strong wing defenders. I know he's a rookie, but Vassal's a great defender on the wing. Um, Keldon Johnson, another young guy, but super strong, super physical. And Tatum just cooked them all. And the one game that kind of gave me a little bit of pause as to Tatum's ability to dominate against elite wing defenders was the game against Garrett Temple recently, where Garrett Temple just kind of got, got into his body and gave him all sorts of fits. But I think when Tatum has the right pieces around him and he's not asked to do everything, you know, initiating the offense and trying to get other people involved, and when he can think score first and we put him in positions with weapons around him where he can just cook, I mean, that dude, when he gets a touch at the elbow, you know, or if he comes off that Iverson cut, there's not much people can do, man. We were talking about this three weeks ago. It's like people are screwed. If Jason Tatum gets the ball and he's moving and he's feeling it and he's look, thinking attack first, you are absolutely screwed. You cannot cover this dude. And those posts, those like high post um, back to the basket type of possessions that we're seeing him have, 
there was a time when I didn't like them. I mean, I grew up watching um, Carmelo Anthony and he's a back to the basket kind of turn around, fade away guy. And I grew up loving that shot as I got more into basketball and understood the analytics a bit deeper. I fell a bit out of love with that shot. I still like watching Melo do it because that's what I grew up on. But mm-hmm. from Tatum now, what you're seeing is he'll receive it there to protect the ball, but then he will swing round and like rip the ball through and face you up. And once Tatum gets you on that face up, that first step, that jab step that he likes to do, the side step that he can do, he's just going to cook you in so many different ways. You want to guard him close, he can fade away, he can step back. You want to give him some room, he's going to put his shoulder into you and he's going to get to the to the rim. Um, that one dunk that he had, I think it was like the highlight dunk, you know, the one where he kind of pulled it away from the, from I think it was from Pirtle. And then yeah, when he cut baseline. Yeah. yeah like, some of these things are things that we knew he was capable of and we've seen flashes of, but I think this was the first time in a game um, or probably second now where he's put all of those scoring tools into one package mm. and then just unloaded on somebody. This is like he was scoring at the rim. There was the mid range. There was the three. He was coming off screens. He was going ISO. Everything we know he could do and we've seen in segments throughout the year was all placed into one nice tidy little package and then it was just like a grenade being thrown onto the floor everyone just he just threw like brad stevens threw the jason tatum grenade and everyone else had to run for cover because he was going off (laughs) yeah that shot chart was crazy right we posted that on our twitter Uh, i mean there was not one shot outside the paint um you know before the three-point line everything was a three-pointer or within that paint area, which is crazy. You know, he, he did take some, you know, mid-range jumpers, but they weren't long twos. And I think that's the shot that he's kind of gotten out of his uh, repertoire is that long two. He can still go to it if he needs to, but he's not relying on the long two. And one thing that you had, you and I had talked about one of my initial pods was his ability to get to the free throw line. And you talked about that veer step and getting contact and the one, the one, um, move that I said he needed to do was take people into the post shot fake and kind of draw that contact near the basket. And he's doing that a lot more. He's getting so tricky around, around the rim with those big shoulders. Cause you've got to play him for the fadeaway, right? That that's, that's the move that you're scared of is that fadeaway. So the moment you start leaning forward to contest the fade, if he just rips through into your chest and goes through your chest, that's a foul every single time. So you're seeing people are a little less willing to commit to guarding the fadeaway because they're scared they're going to get a foul called on them. I mean, it's 17 free throw attempts in a game. That's, I don't know if that's a career high for him, but that, that's got to be close. The dude was just dominating, man. And I was so happy to see him come out from the jump looking to score. You know, that's something that we've seen a lot throughout his career is for whatever reason, he doesn't come out aggressive. And this game, he was the only guy that scored in the first quarter. I mean, it feels like to me, like like you say, he's adding that he's adding caveats to his game. You see him veer a little bit more, but you definitely see him what that post, that up and under move, um, has become a staple, and he is getting fouls from there as well. I think he's also not um, Euro stepping away from contact as much as he mm. used to. He's just yeah. kind of going straight at guys and forcing them to make the right contest instead of panic and just try and foul him. He's Look, man, the way his body's built with the with the width of his shoulders and the length that he's got, like in wingspan and in height, he's just designed to be a ridiculously good scorer around the rim. It just looks like it's he was naturally built to be a contact killer. He was just there, put him in contact to let him kill teams. So 
I think that's always been one of the biggest concerns with him. Like you have every physical tool required to be an absolute menace when slashing to the rim, when dry, when coming off screens and getting downhill. And we've seen you settle for these jump shots, these fadeaways. Now we're seeing him utilize those jump shots on fadeaways, fadeaways, but he's utilizing them to set guys up to draw fouls later. And um, that's that's once you see the change in mindset and you go from being a good player to a great player, when now it's a chess match every night, you're setting guys up through the first two quarters. So when it comes to the third and fourth, you can dominate at the line, you can dominate around the hoop, which then opens up that free again as a result. I mean, a lot, I say this to a lot of people, basketball is very cause and reaction. Everything you do has a cause and every time, every reaction opens up something new for you. Um, and he's, I think Tatum's finally figured out that doing that sort of thing is only going to help him if he diversifies that shot chart, like that one you put out there that was just crazy. It was like a paint by numbers. Yeah. Um, he's going to be dominant. And I think that there's a world where we can see him average like mid, mid 30s next season if he continues. And I don't think that's being a... Beyond, I don't think that's beyond his ability, and I don't think that's beyond the scope of anyone's imagination. Yeah, what you brought up earlier, you said that you know these type of performances, we could definitely see more of them. You know, and we'll become desensitized to them. I think the level that Tatum is going to get to eventually is where you could just pencil him in for thirty points a game. You know, and that that's what we want, right? We don't necessarily need sixty points from Tatum every fifth game, or you know, every fifteenth game, whatever. To sixty points is ridiculous, but if we could just pencil him in for 30 points, eight rebounds and five assists every single night, that is LeBron James status. You know, that is the best player in the world status. And if Jason Tatum can reach his ultimate potential, I think he's going to be in the conversation for best player in the world. He's that good because he also affects the game on the other end of the court. And to me, the biggest um, step for him that he needs to take is his ability to feel comfortable in tight spaces. That's where I see him with the the biggest issue right now when he's driving the ball. He still gets, you know, he still gets people uh, ripping the ball from him. His handle is good in space, but it's not great in tight spaces. So that's where I want to see him develop. And I think if he becomes more, um, you know, proficient and efficient in tight spaces, there's He's going to average 35. I wrote that down in my notes. It's funny you said like mid-30s. I really think he could average 35 points a game if he comes out looking to attack. Yeah, and if he can limit other guys as well, like if his, um, if his defense can get back to a level that we've seen previously, I do feel like this has been a defensive down year, not just for him, but for everybody. I'm mm-hmm. not singling out any one person. Even for Marcus Smart, the majority of the year has been a down year defensively. If Tatum can rediscover that off-ball defense where he just lives in the passing lane and gets two or three pilfers a night, I love saying pilfer. Um, (laughs) And then, you know, it develops an on-ball defense because, again, he has the tools to do so with the wingspan. And I always say that um, NBA defense is 40% physical tools, 20% basketball IQ, and then... No, that's wrong, sorry. 40% 40 hustle, 20% IQ and then 40% um, physical tools. So with Jack Tatum has the basketball IQ, he has the physical tools. All he mm. needs to do now is give at least 30% of that 40 in effort and hustle, and he'll be one of the best two-way wings in the league for the next 10 to 15 years. All it means now is being able to stay locked in and not just be locked in on offense, 
Understand that the best way to kill transition opportunities is not to miss. So yeah, be locked in on offense, but mm-hmm. also the best way to win games is to lock your man up on defense and that will generate more scoring opportunities for you. And I think once it, that clicks on defense for him and his offense is consistently locked in, uh, this guy's going to be scary, man. And then you just put plug JB next to him. That's got going on that same trajectory, just a different style. And, uh, I don't understand why people are saying you need to blow this team up because it just makes no sense to me. Blow up some of the bench. I'm down with blowing up some of the bench. But mm-hmm. JT, J- Jalen, Jason, um, you know, you've got Neesmith had an absolutely great game again. That's two in a row. No point jumping the gun and saying he's going to be exceptional himself. But there's definitely mm-hmm. signs there. There's de- I see signs of like Jalen's rookie season. I see yep. signs of like um, development from him. I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of good pieces on this team, but there's also some dead wood. I won't lie. Yeah, and with Neesmith, that was the big thing, right? When we were talking about what moves could we make at the trade trade deadline, should we throw Neesmith in? Should we throw Romeo in, Romeo in a trade? Should we throw Rob in a trade? And one of my points was you need to allow them more time to build up value because I don't know at the trade deadline if they had the most trade value they'll have. You know, and they, obviously – the unknown might be enticing to another team. Like, ooh, what could Romeo Langford be versus what we've seen from him over the last couple of weeks, which is like, okay, there, you can see some stuff. But with Neesmith now, I mean, he's taking his trade value through the roof. And I, I think you may have even put that in your piece about him. Um, but his, his trade value is going through the roof right now. He's crazy. Uh, that the, the motor that he's playing with, there's nobody on the team that has the motor that he has. You know, and I don't know that you could point to more than 10 guys in the league. He has like a Pat Bev motor. You know, whenever I see Pat Bev on the court, I'm like, nobody plays as hard as Pat Bev. His skill, eh, but he, that's, that's his motor, right? And Aaron Neesmith, oh my God, the plays that he's making on both ends of the court, even something as, as simple as getting back and contesting a shot versus just staying, you know, putting a hand up. I mean, that dude is right. Anytime someone follows through, Neesmith is like touching their fingers on the follow through. And you would, wouldn't expect that because it seems like he's far away and then he's right in your face again. So much more explosive than I thought he was going to be. Do you know what? We're talking about trade value. We're talking about how Neesmith has developed. And I've said this multiple times. You come in as a shooter and develop into a free and D guy, your value is always going to grow exponentially. Mm-hmm. Once you add in that two-way abilities by being able a consistent three-level finisher, it goes up again. But at the start of this season, I was completely convinced that there was a world where the bench unit could rely on a Neesmith-Romeo tandem. So you'd have that wing rotation between Jalen Jason, Neesmith-Romeo. And it was a world where I completely envisioned this. That has changed a little bit now because of Evan Fournier's, um, because the team acquired Fournier. And I just don't see how you kind of fit those three together without sacrificing Peyton Pritchard. And I think Peyton Pritchard deserves not to be sacrificed. But then the question becomes, what do you do? Do you know what I mean? And this is a discussion for the off-season, but I just think that the more we see Neesmith grow and flourish, the more concerned you need to be for Romeo Langford's future because at the moment, he definitely projects more as a ball handler, but there's a better ball handler than him in Peyton Pritchard. The only downside for Pritchard is he lacks the physical tools that Romeo contains, consists of, has whatever word you want to put in there that works. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I, Danny said that they want to re-sign Fournier, right? We didn't trade for him and use the TPE just to let him walk in the offseason. And the way he's playing right now, who knows what, what kind of contract that he'll demand on the open market. 
But that Romeo Neesmith Fournier pairing moving forward in the in, into next season, I mean that that's a great bench unit right there. If that's your bench, I mean everybody six four and above, six four to six seven, um, physical can shoot. Romeo maybe not so much, but he would be the guy with the ball in his hands, right? That that would be the the idea behind that lineup. And with Neesmith, I mean the the shooting that you're seeing from him and the playmaking that you're seeing from him he's doing so much more than I thought he was capable of coming into this year. You said, yeah, three and D, but now you're starting to see some kind of high level reads off of like some, um, you know, off of some screen action. He's getting the ball at the top of the key, driving the ball, making the right read. And he had a couple nice floaters recently, you know, that, uh, that the Kentucky floater that every Kentucky guard seems to have when you get someone on your back and then you see the little floater from the free throw line. He had that great fake, I think it was on Pirtle, where he had Tristan Thompson rolling to the rim. He kind of just gave a fake pass on his hip and then attacked the rim off of two feet. He has that really explosive jump off of two feet, which I think is super important, attacking from the three-point line. So Neesmith, I mean, we could talk about Romeo and what he might be, but Neesmith is a known value through these last two games. And if we just keep putting him out there and allow him 15 to 20 minutes of impactful minutes a game. He doesn't need to play 30 every game, but 15 to 20 of that high energy, that is going to be a difference maker in some games for sure. So I've just looked at where each player spent a lot of time playing, what positions um, throughout their careers. Now, obviously this is quite short for anybody not named Evan Fournier in this discussion, but there's a world where you could go small. I mean, it would be small, but you'd have Romeo Langford at the one, Peyton Pritchard mm-hmm. at the two. Evan Fournier has spent 42% of his career playing at the three, so he'd be more than comfortable coming off the bench as a three. And then Neesmith has spent 17% of this year at the four. Um, so you could have wow. Neesmith at the four and then plug in your Tristan Thompson at the five. Mm. Uh, I think that that's got so much versatility on both sides of the floor. It's, it's a super switchable bench lineup. Uh, very good in terms of penetration with Pritchard and Langford. Very good floor spacing from Fournier and Neesmith and then the hustle and grind from Tristan Tom. If that's your bench unit, yeah, it's going to struggle for stretches because the majority of those guys are going to be second year, third year guys. Um, But at the same time, if you can develop that as well as develop it, continuing to develop Robert Williams, continue to develop Jason and Jalen, then Mm -hmm. that is a really reliable rotation. Okay. The name that isn't included there is Grant Williams. I think that Grant came into that game against the Spurs and had a really solid couple of minute stretch where he hit a few frees, he injected some energy, but he never got back into that game, really. We didn't really see too much. And I just don't, I think that he's such a a specialist in terms of role and impact that he provides that this team doesn't need a specialist right now. They need guys that can contribute right away. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's no room for Grant Williams Maybe uh, Tremont Waters has been getting minutes at the moment. I thought Tremont done exceptionally well in that second quarter against San Antonio. But he's a two-way guy, so you let him go if he needs to go. You yeah. know. But I think that, as you say, Neesmith is the one at the moment that's becoming a quantifiable asset that you can truly look at and be like, this guy can play ball. And But again, it's a two-game sample size. Mm-hmm. Me, I'm not going to buy into this production until there's a 20 to 30 game sample size where I can say, okay, if there's 20 games and 16 of them, he performed at this specific level. Now I'm going to buy into that quantifiable 
asset and say, yep, I believe that he's a core rotation piece. Yeah, that lineup is really interesting that you just threw out there. I've been watching a lot of Philly tape and a lot of Brooklyn tape, and especially Philly. Man, they are so deep. They don't have any bad players that they play. Like everybody that's on the court is just a good player that has some skill and has a defined role on the team. Um, but they they all can handle the ball. They all can pass. They all have good IQs. I mean, Tyrese Maxey's like their 11th guy right now. And when Maxey comes in the game, he can score 20 points if he needs to. George Hill. You know, George Hill, um, Shake Milton, all these guys, uh, even Corkmots, right? Corkmots is, is playing well. Dwight Howard's playing well. They have all these guys that you trust as a second unit. And the Boston Celtics just don't have that second unit that we trust. So I like that five that you just threw out there. Maybe not this year, but definitely next year. And I think that there is a world in which Tremont Waters does carve out some sort of role on some club. I don't know if it's ever going to be the Celtics, but it seems like Brad is realizing the importance of having skilled players on the court. And Tremont Waters, he's 5'9", but he's one of the most skilled guys on the team. I mean, his handle's crazy. He can shoot. I don't think people realize he shot 42% from three in the G League on like seven attempts a game. The guy can actually shoot the ball, and he's a great uh, free throw shooter as well. And he makes high-level passes. He's just, uh, you know, he hasn't got enough reps to understand what is a pass that can work in the NBA because he, he's like, oh, I, I see this pass, and he throws it. And it's like, yeah, maybe that worked in college, but not right now. Or maybe you got to learn how to manipulate the defense to make that pass, you know? So Tremont, I think that's why you're seeing a little bit more Tremont time, is Brad's like, I need guys that can just put the ball on the court and make a play. And Grant Williams, he can hit a three, but he can't put the ball on the court and make a play. Um, and I, I think Smith has shown – Brad that he does have a little bit more playmaking ability and ability to drive off of the three-point line than I think anybody really expected him to have at this point in his career. He's just, I, I can't say enough about Neesmith, man. I'm falling in love with him. I, I know Celtics, Celtics fans are overreactors. I'm a big overreactor, but I need to see Aaron Neesmith on the court. And I was not saying that at the beginning of the year. So you touched on a really interesting point and it's a point that I spoke about with George Carl at the beginning of the season. Um, I know that he hasn't ever been tied to the Celtics, but in my opinion, he's one of the best coaches to do it. Um, and we were speaking about the value of multi-skilled players over spe- um, specialist players. So mm. how many players on your roster would you like to be multi-skilled that can put the ball on the floor, that can penetrate, that, et cetera, et cetera, over a, a guy that's just a catch-and-shoot guy or a defense? Um, after a discussion with him, he basically said that he would take 15 multi-skilled guys, regardless of size, over a team of um, five or six multi-skilled and then the rest specialists because of the way the NBA has turned and the way it's trended and how skill at every position is far more valuable than one specific subset of skills that used to make you a highly versatile guy, like, you know, a free and D guy. It, you, four years ago were exceptional. Everybody wanted a free and D wing. Now that's not enough. It's not enough to come off the bench and just shoot threes and D guys up because yeah. you need to attack closeouts. You need to be able to manipulate the defense to create second side actions. So I, I like the fact that you said that Brad's looking to add more skilled guys into this rotation because it goes in line with something that I spoke about with a, pre, a coach earlier in the season. And it also goes in line with what the hyper basketball I think the Celtics need to play. Because if you look at Brad's teams of old that have been super successful, it's been a highly skilled group of guys, one through 15, yeah. predominantly. 
um, you know, there's been the, the Zellers, there's been the, was Humphreys when Brad was there? Humphreys was there for Brad's first yeah, season. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's my least favorite player of all <laughs> oh time. Oh my God. Um, Marshawn Brooks. Do you remember Marshawn Brooks? Oh uh, yeah. Marshawn yeah. Brooks. I think he was billed as like a young Kobe when he came out. He was indeed, but so many people are billed as a young Kobe and none no, of them ever I become know. a real Kobe. But yeah, so I agree. And I think that having these multi-skilled guys makes the team so much more dangerous in every single avenue. And as you say, I watch a lot of NBA um, outside of the Celtics. And one of the things you notice is teams that can bring in two or three guys that can distribute the ball, that can set other guys up. Those are the teams that are always going to be at the top end of their conference because they can rely on multiple guys to create, not just for themselves, but for others. And Tremont Waters gives you that. And I think there's a world where Aaron Neesmith could slowly develop into that, not so much as a ball handler, but as a space creator just because of the gravity. Even just asking him to Iverson cut or cut baseline will generate space because defenses will be like, Oh, dang. And that's the thing that I, I always try and push. Like Playmaking isn't necessarily making assists. You can be an off-ball playmaker just by knowing how to utilize de- your, your offensive gravity and how your movements make defenses overreact. Yeah, it's the Duncan Robinson effect, right? Could Aaron Neesmith have the Duncan Robinson effect for the Celtics? And you saw that one play... Um, I think they ran it a couple times where Neesmith came off the double staggered screen. I think it was JB and Thompson where JB, I, I think he had set a screen rolled opposite and then they set a double staggered for Neesmith coming off that. And I mean, that just created so much havoc for the defense. They didn't know if to stay with JB. They didn't know if they to switch that. And that, that is, that is one staple, right? When you see Neesmith on the court, it's like, what can he do? What can Brad scheme where other teams have to prepare for it? other than Neesmith just standing in the corner and like maybe hitting a, a three. And you could put anybody in the corner three and, you know, a team knows how to guard that. But when you have this other weapon with a, with, with a guy on the court, like, oh, when Aaron Neesmith comes in the game, we now have to prepare for this, which could open up that, you know? And I, I think that's what Neesmith could bring for sure. Now, th- your talk about the multi-skill players reminds me of just how much the NBA has changed since I was a kid. Because I remember going to Dana Barrows basketball camp. Shout out Dana Barrows, my favorite all-time Celtic right there. But I remember he had this one, one talk that he would give every summer. And he would say, find something that you're great at and do that. Because coaches just want people that can do one thing really, really well. If you're a defender, be a defender. Like if you're a shooter, be a shooter. If you're a point guard, be a point guard. He was like, I was a shooter. So all I did was shoot. You know, and I think if there is one skill you want in today's NBA, it's to be that shooter. But I think that conversation changes today. I don't think you tell a kid that at a camp growing up, if they have dreams and making it to the NBA, you don't say find one skill. It's you have to be great in the ability to dribble, the ability to pass, the ability to shoot, and the ability to defend. You have to do all four of those things. And if you don't do those four things, teams, when it matters, can scheme for you when you're on the court. It's like, oh, this person, all they do is X, right? The Tony Allen of Tony Allen's of the world. Would Tony Allen still be a great player in today's NBA? Because teams were scheming for him anyway, 10 years ago. Imagine what they could do now. You know, that's why Semi Ojale can't be on the court. That's why Romeo right now probably can't be on the court. Is because we just have him standing in the corner. And if Romeo's in the corner, no one's guarding Romeo Langford in the corner this year. So I just I just think the multi-skilled players, we're going to see more and more of that. And if it's like Kelly Olynyk's of the world, you know, Kelly Olynyk isn't a great player, but he's a skilled big. 
you know, and the more that we can put skilled players on the court, the better the Celtics are going to be this year. Yeah, I mean, Kelly Olynyk is a guy whose career I've followed since the day he got drafted by Boston. Um, I think that he's one of the more underrated skilled bigs in the league. You look at what he's doing for Houston right now and how well he's playing there. He's shooting mm. the three. He's, his assist numbers are up. Um, he's dominating in that mid-range area, and his defense is good too. Like, Kelly Olynyk is no scrub. Not at all. Yeah, not at all. He's, he's such a good positional defender. He was so good at taking charges. He was a good communicator. I was hoping there was a world in which the Celtics would be able to bring him back this year because, you know, he, his name was out there as someone who, who was available. Um, yeah, but I, I think with Tremont, right, he's a two-way guy, so you probably don't give him the benefit of the doubt over, you know, one of your core young pieces. But if he earns it and he, if he continues to play well and to make a difference with his on-ball pressure and just – his speed on the court and ability to push the ball and have another thing teams have to worry about. I, I wouldn't mind seeing Tremont get a few more minutes. Yeah. And I'm down for it. The only thing is like, obviously he's a two way guy. So you don't want to be putting him in, in too many positions where you're going to rely on him moving forward. Exactly. When at the moment there's not enough roster spaces and there's going to be teams out there that are going to want to bring him in. Like he's an unrestricted guy at the end of the year. And I'm not saying hold him back because of not being like, you want to pay him less. I'm saying don't put him in a position where you're reliant upon his penetration. So then in six, like in what, four months, he could be gone. And now you need to scour everywhere and hope that you can replace that. And that's my only concern with leaning too heavily on um, Tremont. Outside of that, man, I mean, we've kind of hit on everything that from the positive aspects of things. I feel like last week we uh, we started with the negative and went into the positive. What we can do now is start with the positive and go into the quasi-negative. Like, it's not too bad. The team still won. But, man, they're getting cooked on dribble drive penetration. And it's been a narrative for years now. It's nothing new. But I think against a team like San Antonio that live in that mid-range area, it really becomes a prominent like fawn in your side. Yeah, as I was watching the game and we were just, I mean, that was an absolute clinic. So surgical the way that the Spurs attacked us because they know how we play defense, right? And when you're so, to me, the one thing that that's the issue, and I'm wondering what you, you would say about this. When we scheme to ice the pick and roll, right? And we have guys who know how to hit the mid range and make quick decisions. And if a team sets good screens and if we ice that, it seems like the way we ice this, the pick and roll right now is slightly over aggressive in what we're doing. It's like we're giving guys five feet of space in order to position our back to the screener to keep them to, towards the sideline. You know, that's kind of what I'm seeing as the, the, the one reason why teams are just killing us in that mid range. Because the moment we step up, we, you know, we call the ice. You see the on-ball defender. He jumps to the screen, jumps to the high side, and puts his puts his butt right against you know right against the screener and forces the guy towards the sideline. But they the moment we jump to the top side, the other team is just going. You know they're just they know every single time the Celtics are going to ice it, which is you know pretty standard NBA defense. But they're 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 so sure and they can almost predict exactly when we're going to do it that they're just getting there to that mid range. And when you have a guy like DeJounte Murray, who, you know, isn't, isn't a great player yet, but is really good at hitting that mid-range shot, and you have DeMar DeRozan, who has made a living in the mid-range, like, don't you have to figure out a different scheme in that moment when you're just playing into that team's strength? That's my question, is when, when is Brad Stevens going to start changing up some of his um, base 
base defenses to adjust for what other teams like to do. Yeah, I mean, you make a really good point about being like probably over-aggressive on that ice coverage. Uh, you see them, that's how a lot of the big men get their slips so easily off the perimeter. You'll see some like slip screens and that's because the Celtics have jumped to ice that. But as you say, it's um, it's a very common NBA defense. And for me, the big slips, then you need a help defender to roll over and tag that big while everybody else recovers. And we don't see too many guys rolling in to tag that big, uh, mm. especially from a team that likes to run short roll offense. Another thing that I've seen teams kind of add to their game and not just against the Celtics, this seems to be quite common again, is when you ice a guy in the corner, you'll start seeing guys flash middle. So that they'll just cut middle, and that gives the ball handler that's been iced an easy um, an easy out. You can just hit that guy flashing middle, and then you can get that mid-range, that drive, or that secondary creation. And we saw San Antonio do that a bunch. They flash middle a bunch. But again, it's all about that help defense and that communication knowing that when you ice, there's two guys now on that guy. It's effectively, it's effectively a double team for a, a moment in time. It's kind of like mm-hmm. a, it, it's an advanced hedge, basically. Yeah. Um, so that means you need that help defense rotations. You need guys to start sagging in a little bit, be able to tag that role man, be able to just limit the offensive um, advantage until everybody recovers. But I do agree that Brad does need to adjust a little bit to for what other teams do. I mean, I tweeted this yesterday. And I think that this is Greg Popovich adjusting his offense just to just to snag, just tweaking it a little bit to attack Boston. And that was by running a bunch of up screens, step up screens against the Celtics. So where the Celtics like to run drag screens to get their guys going downhill, what Popovich did was say, hey, just curl into the paint, come back off that curl into an up screen. And what that's going to do is that's going to allow the ball handler to get into the mid-range before the defense can recover. And DeMar DeRozan feasted off that. Calden Johnson got some good looks off that. Um, I think they ran a couple for Pad- Paddy Mills. Just And Paddy Mills would just come in and then cross you back over and go back to three. Like, little tweaks like that that really accentuate a team's... Um, a team's deficiencies in certain areas are what separate the good coaches from the great coaches. And I think Greg Popovich, just because of how long he's been doing this, he understands when to make those tweaks and what those little tweaks should be. Because anybody would just be like, it's a screen. It, but knowing the difference between the drag and the step up and what what type of opportunities they generate, that little tweak made such a huge difference and really made life hard for Boston. Yeah, and when you were talking about the flash um, to the middle, which which offensive player was flashing? I mean, I think that's fluid in general. Like it's usually okay. gonna it's gonna be someone that's weak side. Um, mm-hmm. It could be the the weak side corner guy um, that vertically drive uh, cuts towards flash middle. Usually, it's the guy in the weak side wing that will mm-hmm. come off, similar to an Iverson cut, but with no screeners. Um, sometimes it'll be the two guard. I think that's very. Sometimes it'll be the big off that slip screen, and he'll just flash middle. But uh, yeah. generally, that's really fluid, depending on whoever the defense is left open and where the rotations are. But it was definitely happening. I mean, it's been happening to the Celtics. I think the Thunder did a really good job of flashing middle on them as well. Um, yeah. Because you know that once the ball's in that middle range, the Celtics are going to have to close out on you, and then you've got a big man rolling. For me, that's not as much of an issue as being beat off the dribble. I think that's where their biggest issue mm-hmm. is at the moment, is perimeter dribble drive penetration. Because... Yeah. As we spoke about before you come on, 
for me, that's a, you stay in front of your man. No, you do everything you can to stay in front of your man. And if you need to, you switch. So you've got somebody that can stay in front. Uh, once that guy gets you on his hip, that mid-range area just opens up and then it all just goes to hell. Who would you say are the best on-ball defenders on the team right now? I think Marcus is an obvious one. Um, Neesmith has really been impressive over the last couple of games, his ability to stay connected to people. Is there anybody else that you would say does a really good job? So people that are listening going into this um, next game, you know, after whenever they listen to this episode, who are the people that they should be like, okay, that guy does it well and that guy needs to improve? If you'd asked me this last year, Jalen Brown would have been the second name out of my mouth beyond Marcus Smart. I think he's regressed in that area this year. Uh, I think Peyton Pritchard does quite a good job um, just trying to stay in front of guys. It's going to be hard for him. He doesn't have that acceleration as some of the guys he's guarding, but I think he hustles and tries. Uh, Neesmith does a good job. Tristan Thompson, for all his flaws, mm-hmm. is exceptional at staying in front of his man, in my opinion. I think that he, his body positioning to... Um, deter guys from getting him on their hip is except i think he's exceptional at staying in front of his man just running through the roster now thinking who else i haven't seen enough of fournier to make a decision on him really uh yeah. Neesmith's good i think romeo langford that's one of his biggest strengths is staying in front of his guy on defense yeah. uh, and then that's probably it you know i think shemi does a good job of it as well but he can get beat uh grant williams is terrible at staying in front of his <laughs> man i think that's one of his biggest flaws uh so it depends. I mean, I tell everybody to watch a bit of Pritchard, watch a bit of Neesmith. These young guys are always going to be the future. Jalen Brown mm-hmm. locks guys up for time, for stretches, but he's just not as consistent as he was. But yeah. it's definitely for me that and being able to pressure the ball on, on the perimeter. Yeah, and for people that are out there listening, when I was talking earlier about icing the screen and the guys that are good at it versus the guys that struggle with it, JB is one of those guys that I feel like does a really poor job when when he has to ice the when he when he's called to ice the screen as the as the um, on ball defender, he just gets like an extra foot and a half away from the ball handler, which allows them that extra foot and a half of space. Whereas when you see Marcus Smart do it, one Marcus just like rams into the screener, right? He's super physical against that screen, which is why Marcus draws so many fouls on the screener, where he you know he'll spin off to the top side sometimes and just fall over and get the call. But he also pretty much stays about arm's length away from the ball handler. You know, he's able to just like stay in the space. And I think that is an elite skill, but other teams just do it better than we do. And I don't know why that is. Um, JB just seems to really struggle with it. I think um, Tatum in the past has done a good job just with his length staying connected, which is why I think he's, someone to keep an eye on when we go up against um, the trailblazers tonight. But, you know, for people listening, the game will have already happened against like a Damian Lillard or CJ McCollum. He just does such a good job of just staying in somebody's space. And I think the Celtics just need to, maybe it's just a practice thing. They need to define what the correct level of space is on that ice and how, how they should be forcing people into the right spots. I think Fournier actually does a pretty good job with his angles on defense. I just think his feet are a little bit slow right now. He's kind of stuck in the mud. But I, I've actually liked what he can do when his, when his feet seem to be moving at the appropriate NBA speed. He, <laughs> he, he seems to have good position on ball. I mean, you talk about the trailblazers and everybody's going to be listening to this tomorrow, so it's not going to help. But if anyone does what I do and rewatches. Um, for me, the Blazers run a bunch of empty corner pick and rolls. So there's going to be very little option to ice there. They remove the the ability to ice a pick and roll by removing their guy from that corner, which just creates so much space that you're so 
focused on guarding the role man and the ball handler at the perimeter that you don't have uh, icing just isn't an option and I think they do a fantastic job of putting teams in real tough positions with that empty corner pick and roll they dominated the nets with that um, they dominated the nets with empty corner pick and rolls and uh, Yersif Nokic's short roll game and I think that's going to be the two things that they look to do again against Boston because short roll gets you to that mid-range that's where Boston struggles if you remove the ice then what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to weak um, which means you just force the ball handler to his weak hand and you take away the strong the, the dominant hand angles but again it's tough to do when that ball handler is Damian Lillard when that ball handler <laughs> Is CJ McCollum, and then you've got Norman Powell that can just Norman Powell's such a good player, man. I, I like watching Norman Powell play. Carmelo Anthony's been super efficient all year. I, look, Portland's no Kate Walk. If the, if the team horrible been, defense, horrible defense, horrible defense, horrible. <laughs> but offensively, then they're, they're no joke, man. And at the moment, Boston are finding themselves in shootouts. And one of the teams I wouldn't want to be in a shootout with is a team that's got CJ McCollum, Dame Lillard. Carmelo Anthony and then you know Yosef Nokic is just so big and strong that he can give you problems too so I'm interested to see how Boston take away that short roll and once they figure that out and they become proficient at taking away that that little area around a free throw line extended they're going to be a really scary defense again and I think that's what made them so good before was because they never allowed you to find space for more than a second before they took that space away. And again, that's just, I think it's definitely a product, a byproduct of limited practice time this year. I genuinely believe that. I don't think these guys got bad on defense. I just think that there's a lot of pieces that weren't there last year and you've kind of just had to play through it. And it's very hard to improve when nobody's there giving you guidance and correcting those little caveats, whether it's, you're turning your body to 47 degrees instead of 45 or whatever it may be that sounds stupid to us. Those little things that you can tweak in training make a huge difference on the, on the course. And I think that what we've seen this year in terms of defensive inconsistencies and lapses is definitely a byproduct of a lack of training time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm excited for the Celtics to uh, hopefully avoid the playing game so that we get that extra week of rest and practice because we need it. We definitely need it. Was there anything else that you wanted to hit on? I mean, Will mentioned this. We were talking about practice and uh, we, we, we said we should get Alan Iverson to just uh, do us a quick soundbite, you know, or at least give us permission to use that soundbite. Hey, have you, did you watch that show, Ted Lasso? I did not. Oh, you got to you got to check out Ted Lasso, man. It's such a good show. I think it's on Apple TV, uh, but it's Jason Sudeikis, and he's like an American an American football coach who who's called over to uh, coach a soccer club in um, in in London, and he has this one scene where he just like pulls out the Iver- Iverson practice. He's just like practice. We talking about practice, not the game, not the game, not the game you love. We're talking about practice, but he does it in a way where it kind of like flips the meaning of it. It's so it's so clever because none of the soccer players in the show have ever seen Allen Iverson know who Allen Iverson is. So they're just like looking at it like, man, this guy's going off with this practice. <laughs> he just like <laughs> completely rips it from Iverson. But it's, it's definitely a show to check out for sure. Ted Lasso. Uh, yeah. Everybody tweet at me if you've seen it. I'll definitely put that on my two watch list. I've got a. Uh... I'm kind of getting through everything I wanted to watch. This lockdown's made life real easy. You know, binge watching TV. Uh, nothing nothing worth talking about, to be quite honest. I watched, um, at the beginning of lockdown, I watched a show called Last Kingdom. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. What, what, uh, what platform's that on? Netflix. Um, it was very, very similar to Game of Thrones in certain aspects. Uh, it was based on when the... Um, 
the Vikings invaded England back in like the 18s, what was it, 1600s or something stupid? Nice. Um, yeah. But it's got like, um, it's basically. 1066. I feel like that's the date they, they always tell you, teach you in history class, 1066. Yeah, of Hastings, that is, but I don't know. That, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a history guy. Like um, I took it in school, but it was just never something I enjoyed. Um, but it was fun. It was fun. It was one of those where like you don't get attached to your characters because they're not going to last too too long. Um, some real quotable moments. I think you know a show's good if there's quotable moments months yeah. after that show's finished. Like uh, Friday, and the movies Friday. I love those movies. I watch them and I don't chuckle once because they're just, I've seen them too much, but they are so quotable to everyday life um, that you know they're good because you can, I'm 25 years later, we're still quoting that movie quite consistently. Uh, So I love quotable um, scenes. I'm just, I'm pumped for there's a few new shows. I'm waiting for Raising Canaan right now. Have you ever watched Power? Uh, no, No, I've actually never seen Power. It's one of the shows that's on the list. It's like Power in Atlanta. I feel like are the two shows that I need to watch, but I'm saving them for a rainy day. What's Atlanta? Atlanta was a show. It was on FX. It was Donald Glover and I think um, Lakeith Stanfield. Uh, so it's, I, I think it was their brainchild. But based, I, I'm pretty sure it's 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 just set in like the hip hop culture in Atlanta and someone trying to make it as a hip hop artist in Atlanta. Yeah, I'll check that. I, I'm I'm down for that. I do recommend Power. They're on. Uh, they've just finished their first spin-off, 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 Power Book One, and now they're on to Power Book Two, which is um the one that's coming out in July. So I'm pumped for that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, man. I mean, I spend so much time watching basketball. I just need to like vegetate and watch some TV and just turn my brain off for a while, man. Yeah, that's what I did with Ted Lasso. This um, when I was back home in Boston, I had a little extra time. So I watched, uh, I was just away from my girlfriend. So, you know, a lot of times I'm trying to be a good boyfriend, watch the show she wants to watch. She's rewatching Scooby-Doo right now. So I've been watching a lot of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> that was a lot about her. Uh, but yeah, I just, I was home and I was like, I've, I've been wanting to check out this Ted Lasso show. And it was great. It was just a nice, it, it dude, it's when you first start watching it, you're going to think like, oh, maybe this is like eastbound and down or it's kind of goofy, but it's not. It's got these great moments in it. Like Jason Sudeikis probably is going to be nominated for, for some awards because he kills it. There are a couple scenes where it just takes you out of the normal tone of the show and it almost feels like you're in like a separate universe because they, they one of the themes of the show is divorce and how people deal with divorce. And it's just it's beautifully done, beautifully done. So guys and girls, if you're listening, we're recommending Ted Lasso on this episode. This is not sponsored. This is just, <laughs> apparently it's going to be a really good show. I'm going to try and get it all done. How many episodes is there? Ten. Okay, so I'll try and get it all done by next Sunday when we record again. Cool. Now we can have a dialogue about the good and the bad of the movie. We're going to just, you know, everybody, you've heard loads of basketball talk off us. It's nice to know what we're watching. If you're watching something that's awesome, I'm always down. For um, sure. Shoot me a tweet, a DM, an email, whatever it may be. Uh, let us know what you're watching. And same for music as well, actually. Like, um, I'm super, like, diverse in my music taste. Uh, I'll go from, like, real hardcore gangster rap to some early 2000s hip-hop, and then I'll be listening to some deathcore metal. Um, and anything in between, you know, I love a little bit of Scar and stuff, and Greg's a musician himself, so he's diverse. Uh, tweet at us, let us know what new music's out that's just banging right now. Um, things that you've got on that rotation that are new and uh we'd appreciate that i mean we, i mean greg man what have you, you got any music coming out soon 
All right, so my band, Black Sheep Optimist, uh, we've had a few people follow us from the pod, which has been pretty cool, reaching out and letting us know that they they heard me talk about the Celtics and now they're checking out my music, which I really appreciate. Um, but yeah, Black Sheep Optimist, we got a few new songs coming out. Uh, pro- it's May 2nd, so probably within the next six weeks. But, you know, time goes super fast, so they'll be here before you know it, for sure. But check us out, for sure. Black Sheep Optimist, three words. Um, our EP came out last year called Book One, and we also released a single called The Feeling. Uh, it's, it's, it's mainly hip hop, but there are a lot of pop and rock influences in it for sure. And, um, as I said, I hang out with my girlfriend all the time. So right now I've been letting her kind of control the radio and control Spotify in the car. So we just did a nice little, uh, re-listen into some Backstreet Boys and sync and Britney Spears over the past week. So we've been jamming, man. We've been jamming. Right, I, I, um, I used to share, like we just had a single Spotify account in the house. And, uh, you know, we, we were all logged into it, the wife, me, the daughter. And then, you know, where you get like your recommended for you at the end of the year. Yeah. Um, and everything that got recommended to me was Disney princesses. It was like um, whatever my wife had been listening to. It was very little for me. I was like, that was when I, 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 uh, I kind of put my hand in my pocket and went for that family plan because I was like, I, like, I see everybody sharing their like top songs of 2020. And I'm just like, dude, if I put mine up now, you would think I'm insane. Cause it's like Moana, Alsa. Um, then out of nowhere, there'd be like an Elton John song thrown in there. And anyone that listens to me or follows my work know that I think Elton John's one of the most overrated artists in history. Ooh, that's a hot take. It's a hot take, but it's one that I stand by. It's a hill I'm willing to die on. Um, okay. But yeah, so like, I'm just like, yeah, I need, I just had to put my hand in my pocket and spring for the family plan, man. So hopefully this year it's going to be shareable from my account because it's been a, it was, it was quite disheartening when everything was Disney princesses. <laughs> um, I actually just watched that movie Coco for the first time. I don't know oh, if you've what ever a seen great Coco. Movie, dude. About five times. What a great movie. Okay. I dude, I literally watched it last night for the first time and I was just like in tears. My girlfriend is normally one that's crying during the movies and she looked over at me. She had like obviously tears streaming down her face and she's like, oh my God, you're crying too. I was like, <laughs> don't look at me. Don't look at me. But yeah, but that, that movie's crazy good. Crazy. Oh good. dude, I remember I watched that movie and then about two weeks later I was in um, downtown LA and it was um it was Halloween, so it was Didas Muertes, and everywhere yeah. was like all of like obviously the Day of the Dead stuff, um, Day of the Dead stuff. Uh, we was in Disneyland, and they had like a whole Didas Muertes thing, and like my daughter was like, "It's like Coco, it's like Coco," <laughs> and then she was getting upset because she remembered the film Coco. We've seen it a few times. Uh, it's an excellent film, excellent. Have you ever seen? There's another one as well, The Book of Life. Have you seen? Um, that? I don't think I've seen the Book of so Life. So that no. came out before Coco. Um. But definitely check that out. That's um, is that Pixar? I think so. I think so. I'm not okay. 100, but it's fun. Anyway, guys, we've spoken enough that non basketball <laughs> content to end this episode. Uh, it's good, though, gives you an insight into how quite below average our uh, movie and music life is becoming as we get older. Um, everybody, I hope you're enjoying it. If you've enjoyed the show, hit that five star, leave that written review. If you didn't enjoy it, please don't do any of what I've just asked you to do. Um, if you do enjoy it, you're on Android or you use Spotify or anything that doesn't let you leave reviews, just hit up your friends. Say, hey, guys, I just listened to this amazing show, English guy and a guy from San Antonio just chopping it up about Boston. Send them that little hyperlink so they can check us out too. And we'd really appreciate that. I'm your host, Adam Taylor. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Greg Manikis. And we will catch you again later in the week. Oh, 
Today's Monday, so I'll be on Locker Room Live at 4pm Eastern. Uh, come join me. We'll talk more basketball. We don't. I don't know what's going to happen between now and then. Greg doesn't know what's going to happen between now and then because we're recording before the Portland game. But I'm sure we can find out, and then we'll have a discussion about it. Greg, is there anything you want to say to these fine people before we let them? Um, listen to Black Sheep Optimists. Okay, there you have it. Everybody, you can catch us again on Wednesday and then Friday. Stay safe, have fun, don't do anything I wouldn't do, which means you can do absolutely everything. Disrespecting you haters, I ain't sweating your opinion. Y'all been testing my patience, never did it for a check. I've been impressed with the famous, just rather be creative than stressing my wages. Ageless every time I lay a verse down, one play at a time, keep it moving like a first down. And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this. MJ never made it to the major, still he chased greatness, expected that he might fail, and I might too. I might never get to pop champagne, celebrating with the crew. This ain't everything I am, it's something that I do.